0: This is the Tan Report. I'm your host, Han Trung. December 1st marks 35 years since the first World's AIDS Day, which, to me, seems remarkable. Not just because of how much time has passed, but also how much progress has been made in stopping the spread of AIDS. I'm old enough to remember when the human immunodeficiency virus, better known as HIV, and AIDS, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, were just beginning to hit the public consciousness. In 1982... Before doctors and researchers could even put a name to AIDS, it was compared to another
1: deadly illness. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer.
0: I was a kid back then. From the public service announcements that I saw on television, HIV and AIDS were frightening.
1: There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease, and there is no known cure.
0: The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman.
2: So far, it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading.
0: So protect yourself. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. Then as a teenager, and a huge basketball fan, I thought Magic Johnson was going to die soon after his 1991 announcement that he had contracted HIV.
1: Because of um, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today. Um, I just want to make clear, first of all, that I do not have the AIDS disease because I know a lot of you want to know that, but the HIV virus. Um, my wife is fine. She's negative, so no problem with her. Um, I plan on going on, living for a long time.
0: That was before 1996, when a new class of antiretroviral drugs became available. Fast forward to today, Magic Johnson is alive and well. The ominous PSAs about HIV and AIDS are practically gone. Now when most of us see or hear anything about HIV or AIDS, it's through big pharmaceutical commercials for their line of antivirals. Keep being you and ask your healthcare provider about the number one prescribed HIV treatment, BICTARVI.
2: BICTARVI is a complete one-pill, once-a-day treatment used for HIV in many people, whether you're 18 or 80. With one small pill, Victarvi fights HIV to help you get to undetectable and stay there
0: Whenever I see this commercial, it amazes me that this virus, which was once practically a death sentence for anyone diagnosed with it, can now be treated to a point that it's undetectable. I hate that Bictarvi commercial. That's Bruce Galicero, someone who has worked with a place called Project Lazarus here in New Orleans for a long time. I'll tell you about Project Lazarus in a bit, but let's get back to Bruce's feelings toward commercials for Bictarvi and other HIV meds. He said he hates them, but it's more like a love-hate relationship, Let's start with the love. Else. I think that commercial and, uh, and
2: some of the other ones have probably had more influence on what people think about HIV than anything else, because of the words in there, too. The, the, the words that say, if the virus is undetectable, that you're no, no longer able to transmit HIV. Uh, I mean, those are life-changing words for anybody that's got HIV. And I think having those words out in the public over and over again have, I hope help reduce the, uh, the stigma, and to made it, make it look like a more manageable disease. I mean, I think in, 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 in my, my life and my friends, that's how, that's how they look at it, because we've seen it over and over again, that if you just take your meds and take care of yourself, that you'll, you'll be okay.
0: Bruce says he hates the commercials because they can lead us to believe that HIV and AIDS are no longer health threats. It's just as deadly.
2: The virus is just as deadly to somebody uh, if they're not on meds.
0: Because of better awareness and education surrounding HIV and AIDS, and of course, because of the medications, the number of infections and deaths from AIDS has dramatically dropped. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 630,000 people throughout the world died of AIDS last year. Compare that to the mid-2000s, which are considered the peak years of AIDS deaths, when 2 million people were dying annually of AIDS. While the number of HIV infections has also declined, the virus is still prevalent, especially in the American South. Louisiana recently ranked fourth in the nation when it comes to rates of HIV. As of last year, more than 22,000 people in the state are living with HIV. New Orleans and Baton Rouge are consistently among the top 10 U.S. cities with high rates of HIV. I was,
1: I mean, I say I was extremely broken. I really didn't know if I was going to make it. I was just that ill. And when did you learn of your HIV status? Forty years ago. Uh, and I never was one to take medication because I convinced myself I was never positive, even though I knew I was.
0: That's Nathaniel. I'm only using his first name to protect his privacy. Nathaniel is a product of New Orleans.
1: I had a beautiful childhood. Uh, you were raised here in New Orleans? Yes. Born and raised? Yes. Uh, where did you I, grow up? In the desire housing projects, uh, my parents was extremely uh, structured. They gave me everything I needed. I did well in school. I did well in everything I've done. I did well, extremely well. I excel in everything. <laughs> Unfortunately, I excel in my drug use as well. <laughs> when did the drugs come into your life? In my first year of law school. And that's when everything changed.
0: Nathaniel knew the stigma surrounding HIV and AIDS, that they were seen as gay diseases, and those who were infected brought it upon themselves because of their sexual orientation or lifestyle. How do you deal with that stigma or that assumption from, from folks sometimes that it's your fault because you made these behavioral choices in your life? Well,
1: when, when, that, when that happened to come up, I mean, for the most part, it was my fault. I chose that. It didn't choose me. I chose it. I, I know where I contracted it from. Uh, uh, my sexual promiscuity was it was it was just that, uh, and the drug use definitely. Uh, I had no boundaries. I had no boundaries at all. Uh, and being a drug addict for as long as I was, I I I knew that half the at least half the people that I I got high with was infected. Uh, and most most of them guys, maybe eighty percent of the guys, I knew that they was not gay. Uh, so being a gay man disease. disease, nah, that's that may be at the unsolved, but not today. So in
0: your view, I mean, it's, it's high among addicts, high among homeless
1: people yes, as well. Yes, extremely.
0: At a particularly low point in his life, Nathaniel found himself out west.
1: I lived on Skid Row in L.A. No place like it. I've been, I've been around the country. No place like it. I, don't, I can't even describe it to you it was uh not only was it immense it was it almost it almost captivated the attic it was a place that would captivate the attic and and i say and I say that it captivated the attic was that it was a place where you can be an attic and there was no consequences uh for example you can stand you can sit outside two blocks from the police station and and get bloated, and smoke crap. And there was no consequences, uh, not f- not, from, not from the authorities. Uh, and, and it was amazing when I came back home. It was, it was damn near the same.
0: Nathaniel eventually came back to New Orleans. For decades, he was in denial of his HIV-positive status until the spring of 2022, when he got very sick. He couldn't walk. And became emaciated. Probably about 130 pounds. The virus that he ignored for almost 40 years was now taking over his body.
1: My CD4 was like eight. My and bl- red and blood. What is CD4? My red blood, okay. Okay. Red blood was blood like eight. Count. My viral load was in the millions. Uh, I, uh, you were very oh, sick then? Very sick, extremely sick. I couldn't eat. Uh, and that's a terrible thing.
0: What was going on
1: in your head when, when you realized that you were HIV positive? Again, I didn't believe it. And, and I never got sick a day in my life until 19 months ago. Uh, I never was ill. Uh, I mean, I, I utterly convinced myself that this was not happening until it happened. Uh, Did you believe you were going to die at that point? I mean, Yeah. Uh, when I was I was hospitalized for like almost fifty days. Um I went to ICU and my brother my brother Bruce was always there for me. Always uh, we were sitting I was in a bed and uh and I told him, I said, I don't think I'm gonna make it. So uh and I appreciate you man, I love you. He rubbed my head, I closed my eyes.
0: After leaving the hospital,
1: Nathaniel needed help. He was in a wheelchair,
0: was still battling addiction, and had no place to live. So he turned to a place he once heard of, a place called Project Lazarus.
1: And what I did hear about it was that people came here to die in dignity, with dignity. And, uh, and when I heard, I knew it, was, it came here to die with dignity, I said, this is where I wanted to come. But I didn't come here to die, though. I came here to live, I did. <laughs> I knew this. Uh, how I was going to do it I didn't know, but it happened. and now I understand why I was adamant about coming here. for almost 38 years, Project Lazarus
0: has been providing food, transitional housing, and medical guidance to people living with HIV or AIDS. So in practical terms, how did Project Lazarus kind of help you learn to live again like what what, what practical steps did? did Project Lazarus
1: help you take? First of all, what they did was acceptance. They accepted me for who I was in the position I was in today. Because again, I knew I wasn't supposed to be here. Uh, And they allowed me to be here to let me work it out. They let me work it out. Uh, And they were patient, extremely patient. It took a minute before I really was able to really take care of myself. Uh, I hated it, <laughs> but uh, I loved the idea that I knew people cared. Did Project Lazarus help you cope with your addiction? Absolutely. Like, how, how did that work? Uh, and, that's, and that's again, that's the beauty of being here. You, you, you get the opportunity to deal with your addiction and you got a chance to deal with the virus. And. It works. It's such a unique place. I've spent a lot of places in this country. I've seen a lot of things in this country. Uh, lots of rehabs. Lots. No transitional houses. It's the first, and I've I've been around, and this place is so unique, uh, mostly because it's unrestricted. Most places I've been to, there was there was so many restrictions that it made it almost impossible to stay without wanting to leave, if that makes any sense. Restrictions in terms of you can't be uh, a drug addict or you can't be using, uh, explain that. Okay, for instance, if you relapse here, there's always a second chance. And this place is always a place of second chances. In modern terms, Project Lazarus takes a holistic approach to the services
0: it provides for people with HIV or AIDS. But in 1985, when Project Lazarus got its unofficial start, there was no mission statement or established program. It couldn't even disclose its location. Was this the secret place back in the day? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, like yeah. this location was not disclosed now, to people. No,
3: I have heard stories that people in the neighborhood knew because the hearses would come by here regularly. Yeah. This is a lot to, about the times. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. And that's Susanna Dietza, the current executive director of Project Lazarus. She mentioned the frequent sighting of hearses because when Project Lazarus was in its infancy, it was a hospice for AIDS patients in New Orleans. Keep in mind, this was before HIV medication and treatments existed. One of the founders of Project Lazarus was a Franciscan priest named Father Robert Powell, whose ministry was in the historic French Quarter. And
2: gradually we began seeing black wreaths in the French Quarter and then I was notified that there was a person due to be released from Charity Hospital who had no place to go. And at that time we had a guest room and I invited that person, his name was Robert H., to move in and we would take care of his food and transportation to clinic, etc. The very evening I did that, I got a call from Veterans Administration Hospital. Father Powell, I understand you just established a hospice for people with AIDS. I said, I did nothing of the sort. I just welcomed a homeless man into our place.
0: From one guest room at Father Powell's location in the French Quarter, Project Lazarus grew in size with the help of another Catholic priest, Father Paul de Rozier's. Together, they convinced the Archbishop of New Orleans to allow them to take over a former convent next to what was then Holy Trinity Church in the Marigny neighborhood of the city. They didn't know it at the time, but Project Lazarus became the first Catholic hospice for AIDS patients in the U.S. When AIDS patients in New Orleans had no other options, Project Lazarus offered them a place where they could spend their final days. The work was difficult and had to be done quietly. Before it was established that HIV could only be transmitted through sex or a blood transfusion, many people with AIDS were treated as outcasts, even by their own family. Sister Marcy Romine was with Project Lazarus in its formative years.
2: Individuals would come and sit with, the, with folks when they were dying so they wouldn't die by themselves. We'd, get call, we'd call an individual and say, um, we'd call a parent or a family and say, your son, your brother is, is, is dying and they'd say, well, let us know when he, when he dies. So out of the 18 people that lived here, 11 of them died between Thanksgiving and Christmas and it was a very painful time for me because um, I had come to love them and to see them die it was in such ways. And, and a lot of them were not um, supported by family and so that added to the pain.
0: Here again is Bruce Galicero, a volunteer and former board member at Project Lazarus.
2: You know, those, those were such difficult times. There was such a need um, for a place like this in those days because AIDS was such a horrible disease and it wasn't anything. Even people who had family that could take care of them, uh, the end stages of the disease were just so difficult. and
0: uh, I think it's important for, for us to point out and for anybody listening to understand that AIDS and HIV back then. I mean, there really was no treatment because no. I think it's completely different from what we see today. Correct. Post Magic Johnson and yeah. then you know the commercials that we see now. It there was really no remedy for. No, there for
2: there really wasn't. I mean, as Nathaniel was uh, was saying that. I mean, the, the drugs that were around. Uh, weren't helping people, or it wasn't, you know, wasn't nearly enough. So no, there was nothing. There was nothing you could do. And people, the end stages, uh, you know, people were blind because of uh, cytomegalovirus. They'd have pneumonia, and so they couldn't breathe. It's just very, it was very, very difficult to take care of people in those uh, in, in those end stages of the uh, of the disease. And so that's what this place became was a place where uh, someone could come and and die with dignity. Uh, and I will never forget going to this, uh, this event and seeing my friend Joey. I'm sitting on the couch, and I look across the room, and I see Joey's there. But I went up and, and talked to him, and I said, Joey, I'm, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm glad you're here. I mean, I'm sorry he was here because he had HIV, but I was glad he was here because I knew he was going to be taken care of. And I know after he passed and I went to his funeral, I mean, that was what his family said. They don't know what they would have done without Project Lazarus. It was a loving, supportive family, but they couldn't have taken care of him at the end. Um, and that's what this place offered for him.
0: In the mid-'90s, as HIV treatments and medications were developed and then became available, Project Lazarus was no longer known as just a place where people with AIDS or HIV go to die with dignity. There was at some point that we realized that
2: nobody was dying anymore. We all noticed in the community there, friends weren't getting sick anymore and people weren't dying anymore. And at some point that was, I guess, where they realized that they had to uh, sort of transition the, uh, or that they could transition this project to something that really could help people, you know, actually live again and that they could come and, and move out. I remember when I was on the board, there was, there was a day that they got rid of the last hospital bed here. There were a bunch of a bunch of these rooms here had hospital beds in them, and there was no need for them anymore.
0: And what a happy day that was. Today, the mission of Project Lazarus and its location are no longer secrets. So you're on the Marigny side then?
3: Yes, we're on the Marigny. We're on the Marigny side, yeah, yeah. So we are right on... St. Ferdinand, between St. Ferdinand and Homer Plessy and Royal and Dauphine, and we all occupy almost an entire city block. This was the parish, the Holy Trinity parish, where Father Paul was approached by Father Bob in the 80s to um, give some of the rooms that they had here, and which he did, so we have the privilege of really having a huge campus.
0: Holy Trinity Parish is no longer in the Marigny. Its church was closed in 1997 and is now home to the Marigny Opera House. But the convent next to it remains home to Project Lazarus. Executive Director Susana Dietze showed me around the campus, including parts that took on damage during Hurricane Ida in 2021.
3: One of our main buildings is a huge two story building where one of the sites was completely exposed to Hurricane Ida and every every nook and cranny that could let water in did, which led to collapsed ceilings, which led to holes in the wall. So is, is yeah.
0: this are we in the residential area? Right
3: this now? is the residential area. So all of the build, all of the rooms here were resident rooms and they all were beautifully furnished. A lot of them were, um, you really can't see that now, but uh, have beautiful furniture in them and right now we're still waiting. So
0: when when somebody comes to Project Lazarus, I guess if you can boil it down like what does Project Lazarus provide for somebody with HIV AIDS when they come here
3: yes so when people come here they get their very own room with a telephone and a tv then they get three healthy meals a day they get case management so we have a clinical staff that works with our residents on getting a housing application done we're providing psychosocial support we're providing substance abuse uh, substance abuse counseling so we have a number of programs that are designed to individually address what, the needs of our clients and that can be very different from client to client so we might have someone who's coming in in their twenties and they have just been diagnosed with HIV so we teach would teach them about medication adherence we would make sure that um
0: do you provide the medication
3: no we don't provide them the medication we all of our residents are connected to a health provider whether that is crescent care or whether that is the tulane hop clinic or whether that is umc where they receive their medications uh we don't dispense the medication but we provide verbal reminders every day which for some of our residents is, is is needed so um i was talking about someone who might might be in maybe in their 20s and we're kind of working with them to kind of do some life planning you know now that you're hiv positive what are some of the things that you want to put in place then we have a lovely lady who's in her 70s, you know, who is uh, HIV positive. Her needs are very, very different. You know, we make sure she gets to her doctor's appointments. We make sure that someone helps her with shopping when she goes out. So it it, it really depends on who the person is. But our, our I think one of the beauties of our program is that it is individually designed.
0: But you mentioned the Applications for housing can yeah. be made here. Yeah. So this isn't a place where like people come to stay.
3: No, no. We are a transitional housing provider. However, uh, we, we do not let, we do not say like after a year or so, you got to move on. Uh, we work with someone for as long as they want to be here until they have found other housing. Yeah. And with a shortage of affordable housing in the city, it's quite a challenge.
0: Another challenge is preventing the spread of HIV in New Orleans. Susanna told me Project Lazarus has been at capacity for the past two and a half years. Even with increased access to medication, HIV still impacts people in this region. Other places, other cities have been able to manage it, but yet New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and maybe other parts of Louisiana are still struggling with high cases of HIV. Why why is that? Why do you think?
3: Uh, Well, I think the American South as a whole has really the highest incident and new infection rates. I think this is a very conservative part of the country uh, even though you know New Orleans might be known as somewhat of, of, a, of a gay Mecca doesn't mean that stigma doesn't exist we have a lot of clients who might come from a more rural you know area who are not out to their families or sometimes even themselves about their HIV status and or their sexuality so I think that has a lot to do with it one of the statistics that's that's really very upsetting is that the likelihood that a gay young man will contract AIDS is one in two think about that that
0: today still
3: still today yes AIDS and HIV has really settled into communities that are underserved and overlooked. And that's why I'm always a little bit critical of the Big Tar-V commercials, because it completely erases from our view those communities that don't have access to health, health care and prevention. And those are really the communities that we're serving today.
0: And I don't want to misstate it. So, I mean, in your view, because we have a, a fairly high population of, of the gay community yeah. in New Orleans, yeah. and perhaps Baton Rouge as well, do you think that's part of the reason why we still have high rates of, of HIV and AIDS because of, of the, the communities that it generally impacts?
3: Um, that's a good question. Looking at the clients that we serve, I would say no, and then I would say yes a little bit as well but uh you know one of the most overlooked populations that that suffer from hiv is women it's much easier for a woman to contract aids than it is for some for a woman to transmit aids so we're overlooking those and populations and 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 what we're also overlooking is people who are still sharing needles for instance so uh, or what we're overlooking is populations for whom it is difficult to take a daily medication partly because they might face health mental health challenges or because they're homeless and they don't have access to care
0: and I think it's it's it's, it's unfair of me as a reporter to ask like well who are the populations which populations <laughs> yeah. are being affected yeah. most yeah but it, it I mean generally speaking I mean and these are my assumptions.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: My assumptions would be that the homeless population, yes. the African-American yeah. com- community, and the gay community are, generally speaking, the communities yeah. that are impacted yeah. the most. Is, yeah. is that is that correct?
3: Yes. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Thank you for putting it that way. Yeah. But
0: in stating that, those are generally the communities that often are dealing with a lot of discrimination yes. in general. Already, So how yes. does that how does that affect the work here at Project Lazarus and people who are advocating for people with HIV and AIDS? Because mm-hmm. I can't imagine it's it's any easier when those communities are already suffering their own yeah. levels of discrimination yeah. and then you add HIV and AIDS yeah. on top of that. Yeah. So how how does that affect your work when you're dealing with that type of discrimination?
3: I think it it's what motivates our work, you know, because we are here to provide a space for people where these discriminations and that stigma doesn't exist. And I think Nathaniel spoke to that beautifully. You know, we are here to provide people with a safe space, with love and care and compassion. I don't care how someone, or we don't care how someone contracted AIDS, we care about you in the moment, to live your best life.
0: That's got to be so difficult because I think often society takes a look at HIV yeah. as, as something that the person who is yes. infected and yes. you know, afflicted with the yeah. virus as something they chose because it's generally speaking associated with behavior.
3: Of course it is, Yeah, yeah. And we're still, even though times have changed, but some of that prejudice and some of that stigma is still with us we always as a society we always like to judge people by their behavior because we want to create this other that we are not and you know that the hiv uh victim is 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 in that way the perfect point on which you can put your blame and can say oh yeah they brought it upon themselves and then that sometimes becomes pervasive, too, and people who are afflicted with the disease internalize that. And that is also something that we're trying to undo here.
0: Like any nonprofit, what keeps Project Lazarus going is funding. Half of that has come from donations by charities, foundations, and events. The other half comes from federal funding. In 2019, then-President Trump announced a plan to end HIV and AIDS in the U.S. by 2030. In recent years, we have made remarkable progress in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Scientific breakthroughs have brought a once-distant dream within reach. My budget will ask Democrats and Republicans to make the needed commitment to eliminate the HIV epidemic In the United States, within 10 years, we have made incredible strides, incredible. The former president's plan got applause and bipartisan support at the time. It received hundreds of millions of dollars from Congress. But four years later, the GOP-led House is looking to change course. Earlier this month, House Republicans proposed to cut $542 million from Trump's HIV plan, which is 95% of its budget. By most measures, Trump's HIV initiative was ambitious, but without adequate money, it seems unrealistic. But back at Project Lazarus, there's evidence that HIV and AIDS can be controlled.
1: Me, being here and just being where I'm at today is nothing, nothing short as a miracle.
0: When Nathaniel came to Project Lazarus more than a year ago, he described himself as broken a man who could barely walk or eat. But like the biblical character for which the project is named, Nathaniel has found new
1: life because of the help he's received at Project Lazarus. I had a primary doctor uh, that I would see every month. I check my numbers. I'm always on my numbers. I'm not detectable. My, my CD4 is it's, it's constantly climbing. And what I do today is that I stay healthy, and I stay sober. For the moment, this is home. And I'm not embarrassed to be here. Uh, is this the closest to home that you've felt in many years? Uh, no, this is the closest I've ever I've felt to having peace. Um, and I yearn for peace. It's one thing that I would never compromise on again. It's my peace of mind. It's been a long time coming. In New Orleans, I'm Ton Trung for WWL Radio.